your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 25 through 32 this morning. That is, we're going to finish chapter 4 this morning. And uh, the title is, What the New Walk Looks Like. What the New Walk Looks Like. And basically, that's the walk of the new Christian. What the new Christian's walk is to look like. It's a big difference from the old life to the new. And Paul, up to this point, has just been giving kind of general things that the new Christian is supposed to do. But in the last part of the chapter, he points out specific things that we are to do and aren't to do that shows people around us that we're believers to look for specific things. We left off last time together at the end of chapter 4 with verse 24. And Paul said, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul left us saying the new man was created in true righteousness and holiness. And that means put on your new nature. Created to be like God. Truly righteous and holy. And this shows us that this is the imputed righteousness. The righteousness that is given to us in Christ. It's His righteousness. And that everything that we do should match with the holy character of God. If we are children of God, we are to be reflecting the Father's character, the Father's attributes. Since we've been declared righteous in Christ, we're in Christ. We're seated in the heavenly places. So then our, wor- our walk down here should match our position. And then Paul goes on to give us some specifics, like I said, for our new life. The, and the only sure proof that a person is saved is a consistent life that imitates Christ's life. Not just because they said they're saved, not just because they call themselves a Christian, not because they go to church. That doesn't make them a Christian. Paul said, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. What a statement. Could any of us say to somebody that's, you know, a new Christian or, or coming to, imitate me. Watch me and do what I do. I would never dare to say that to anybody because I'd mess them up in a minute. Thank God for His grace and a real model to follow, and that's Jesus Christ. John the Apostle wrote this, He who says, I know Him, that is Christ, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Again, the boldness of God's Word. John says, if you say, I know Jesus, but you don't keep His Word, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. Because you see, new creatures act like new creatures. 
And Paul has just shown us in verses uh, 17 through 24 that believers know salvation to be putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And the idea of putting off was a person taking off an old, dirty, torn garment and then putting on a new, fresh, clean garment. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And the odd thing about the Christian life is that both God's sovereignty and man's will are at work. In other words, we have our part in this thing called salvation, and God has His part. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Paul said, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Now, now, now he's not saying that, that salvation is works. He's not saying you need to work to get into heaven. No, he says there's a part of our salvation that we have to work at to continue to obey and to walk and, and to you know, be a witness for Christ. So he says work hard to, sh- no, to show the results of your salvation. In other words, this work is the result of being saved. I'm not working to be saved. He says, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. He said, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So work hard is what we do. And again, as a result of being saved, what I do is because I am saved. I don't do it to be saved. And then God is doing what I can't do. God is at work in us. That's his part. We do all that we can, and he does what we can't do. You see, he gives us a, a responsibility in salvation. All right? The faithful believer obeys God's sovereign commands. And then after showing what believers are and have in Christ in chapters 1, 2, and 3, in chapter 4, here in these first 24 verses... Paul first gives general, simple instructions for the reason of living the new life. And now, beginning with verse 24, uh, 25, and through the rest of the letter, Paul is going to give now specific instructions on how to live that life and what it should look like. So in verses 25 to 32, now he describes several differences between the old life and the new life. Based on the newness of life, believers are to quit lying and tell the truth. Believers are to stop getting angry for personal offenses and be angry at those who, get, uh, who offend their fellow man and the Lord. They are to, the new man is to stop stealing and start sharing. The new man is to stop using corrupt words and use gracious words and turn from fleshly vices to supernatural qualities. So let's begin now with verse 25 in chapter 4. And the first thing they hear, he says, is we are to stop lying and start telling the truth. Verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So he starts out with therefore. And that therefore takes us back to what he has said in verses 1 through 24. In light of what he said in verse, 21, verse 1 through 24, he is saying, stop lying. Start telling the truth. These verses describe now the way or how they should live the new life. 
Now, if you're a Christian and you're a new Christian, this is, Paul said, this is how you are to live the new life. Did you know that liars are not going to heaven? Liars are not going to heaven, among other sins. But Revelation 21, 8 says, All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, lying today does not seem to be a big deal, even to Christians. If a person's life is just one lie after another, that person has no biblical reason for thinking that they're a child of God. If a person continues to lie, one lie after another, again, they have no biblical support for saying that they're a Christian. Because the person who lies continually is really a child of Satan and not of God. Because the Bible says that Satan is the father of lies in John 8, 44. And like I said, we know that lying is a common thing with the unsaved. Before I knew Christ, lying to me was no big deal. I would lie about anything and everything if it helped me out or got me what I wanted. But now that I'm Christian, that's a no-no, a big no-no. So many lies, one after another, so many organizations, businesses, economies, governments, you know, contracts, they're all built on lies. The world lives on lying. Lying includes exaggerating. Exaggerating, that's stretching the truth, embellishing the truth. Adding something to what you're saying in order for somebody to believe you. Now, if people have a problem believing you, that where you have to start embellishing the truth and exaggerating, there's a problem with you, with what you're saying. You know, again, adding something that isn't true to what started out as being true. Cheating in school. Cheating on income tax returns. Promises that we make that we can't keep. Betraying somebody. Betraying their confidence, flattery, making excuses. They're all forms of lying. Half-truths are whole lies. There's no such thing as a half-truth. It's a whole lie. The child of God shouldn't have any part in any kind of lying. Paul said he's to put away lies. He's to be known for his honesty because lying and the new life, they can't exist in the same heart. They're incompatible. It's light and darkness. They can't live in the same heart with their new nature. And it's unacceptable to his new Lord. The child of God is to stop lying so that he can honestly do the Lord's work. Zechariah 8.16 says this, These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. The church cannot function the way it's supposed to, if the members of the church are bending the truth with one another or they, or, or they don't work together honestly and lovingly. We can't minister effectively to one another or with each other if we don't speak the truth in love, especially among ourselves as fellow believers. Then in verse 26 through 27, Paul says, put off fleshly anger for righteous anger. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The anger that's mentioned here isn't a, uh, isn't a quick outburst of anger or, uh, or, or inner boiling bitterness. But it's a deeply rooted, determined, and settled conviction. I am going to stay mad. 
I'm going to stay mad at this person or over this thing. This anger can be good or bad, depending on why you're angry. Paul's command here is be angry, so he's given the okay under certain conditions. All right, so he, he's saying be angry under certain conditions, but don't sin. Righteous indignation is anger at wickedness. It's anger at things done against the Lord, against His will, against His work. It's the anger the Lord's people have who hate evil. We, have, we can't love the things that God hates, and we can't hate the thing that God, that God loves. We are to hate evil. Paul, uh, the, uh, Solomon said, I'm sorry, the psalmist said in Psalm 69, 9, Passion for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. So, you know, Solomon, the psalmist said, you know, uh, um, I've been consumed, okay? The, the passion of your house, loving you and your house, you know, I, I've, been in, uh, I've been consumed with insults. And insults that have fallen on you, Lord, they have fallen on me, and vice versa. It's the anger that hates unfairness immorality and ungodliness of all kinds. Jesus expressed righteous anger at the Pharisees, remember? When they got upset with him for healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, oh, they got so upset at him. It was probably the same kind of anger that caused Jesus to drive the money changers out of the temple for ripping off the people. Jesus was always angered when his father was slandered or when others were mistreated. But Jesus never got angry when people did things to him. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.23, He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. So whenever people messed with Jesus, whenever they insulted him or whenever they threatened him, he didn't threaten back, he didn't take out revenge. He committed the problem to his father. Father, you take care of it. Anger that sin, anger that sin is anger that's self-defensive, self-serving, that's resentful of what's done to self. It's the anger that leads to murder and God's judgment. Remember when, 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 when Cain got angry at his brother Abel? Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. God confronted Cain. And he said to him, why are you angry? You see, the father's trying to get a confession from Cain. He's trying to get Cain to see things in the right way so that he'll be okay and he'll be forgiven and sin won't be a danger to him. He says, Cain, why are you angry? And then he says, why has your countenance fallen? In other words, he could see it in his face. He was angry and he was at his brother and God could see it in his face. And then God challenges him, challenges him. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. There's the warning. If you can't get over your sin, man, it is waiting to take you. It's waiting to eat you up. It's waiting for you to do something that you will regret. He says, and it's desire. Sin's desire is for you, Cain. You should rule over it. 
Jonah chapter 4, 4. Then the Lord said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? So you see God challenging these, these guys to, to think about why are you angry? Is it the good thing to do? Is it the right thing to do? Is it helpful? What's it going to do to you if you allow it to take over? Anger that's selfish, out of self-control, and spiteful is sinful. And it doesn't belong in the life of a child of God even for a second. But anger that's unselfish and it's based on love for God and others is allowed and commanded. But even then, righteous anger can easily become bitterness, resentment, and self-righteousness. So Paul goes on to say, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Do not compromise. Even righteous anger can, can turn bad. That's why we need to get rid of it right away as soon as we can, at least by the end of the day. If you go to sleep angry, it's probably going to give, give place to the devil. It's going to open the door to the devil to use it for his purposes. And if you stay angry, you might start looking for a way to, to get even. You may start looking for a way to justify that anger. Breaking God's principle in Romans 12, 17-21, where Paul said, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You overcome evil with good. Anger can come in a flash. And it can overtake a child of God. And because it has such a strong descent, uh, tendency to grow and to boil, it needs to be dealt with right away. You need to confess it. You need to forsake it. And you need to give it, you need to, give it to God before the day's over. And whether your anger is for a good reason or not, if you feed that anger... Man, you're going to give Satan the advantage. He'll have the advantage of that, of, that, of that anger and of you. And he'll feed your anger with self-pity. You know, oh, poor me. Oh, look what that person did to me. And you begin to, to pity yourself. And then pride comes in. You know what? They can't do that to me. I'm going to tell you can't do that to me. And then self-righteousness sets in. And then vengeance and then we, we, we do something or we say something. We defend our, our so-called rights and, and every other kind of selfish sin and disobedience to God's will. Again, anger is a dangerous thing. It's a powerful emotion. You know, and if we're not walking with God and we're not, you know, we're not, we, we're not you know, resting in, in Christ, man, that, thing, that, that anger is going to take over and it can do some ugly things. How many times do we read on the news when somebody had, you know, struck somebody or kill somebody out of a fit of anger. They let it stew and they, they let Satan, you know, just, just tell them, oh man, they did you wrong, man. You need to pay them back and you got to do all these things. And, and, and that moment of anger ruins the rest of their life. That's why God warns us to be careful. Verse 28, stop stealing and start sharing. Look at verse 28 now. 
Paul says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. You know, the temptation to steal <clears throat> probably touches all of us in some way. It's just part of the old nature. Because of the old nature, the old self, the old fallen nature, this old, old nature has a tendency to steal. And that's one of the many characteristics of the old man, the old life before Christ. But not in the new man which Paul said is created in the likeness of God. And we're to put away those kinds of things. The child of God is not to steal anymore. Nothing, nothing, no matter how small you might think it is and no matter what a big deal you think it isn't. Shoplifting today more than ever, and we're seeing it just done in broad daylight without a care in the world. We're seeing it, this smash and grab. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no reservation. They're just going in and busting into these stores and busting the cases and taking whatever they want. A lot of the businesses now, they're, they're, they're going bankrupt. They're shutting down because of loss of profits. Most, businesses lost, most business losses are due to employees' theft, stealing you know, supplies and equipment from the company. You know, and, and I know my own self, before I was... A Christian, it's no big deal to steal pens and paper clips and post-its and, you know, have my own office going on home. <laughs> no big deal. This, com this company, it's a million-dollar company, billion-dollar company. What's a few paper clips? What's a few post-its? What's a few pencils or pens? Hey, that's not mine. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. It doesn't belong to you, regardless of who owns it. No matter how much money they make, no matter how many they have, it's not yours. Purposely, purposely overestimating a job. Embezzlement. Those things are widespread in business and industry today. Padding expense accounts. Padding budgets. Reporting more hours than really worked. Not reporting income to the IRS. Those are all accepted as normal by a lot of people today. And what, is the, what do they say? Oh, everybody does it. Maybe so, but not you and me. Not if, I, not if I carry around the name of Christ, Christian, born again believer. That, sh that, that, that should not belong to me. That, I shouldn't have anything to be doing anything to that. To them, a lot of people, stealing is just a game. Hey, as long as you don't get caught, what's the big deal? No shame, no guilt. And for young people, taking money from your dad's, off of the dad's dresser, your dad's dresser, mom's purse, you know? Not paying uh, your debts, not paying fair wages, keeping the change if the person at the register gives you too much back. It's all stealing. There's so many ways that we can steal. Stealing is sin and it has no part in the walk of the new Christian, the new man in Christ, the new woman in Christ. Paul says a better option for stealing is working so that you can give to those who have need. That's God's plan for everyone, to work if they can work. We know because of physical things and illnesses, some can't work. But those who can work should work. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. 
Paul says, even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those, notice, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. <laughs> Far cry from what's going on today. Why work today? Hey, we'll give you whatever you need. We'll just hand it out to you. We'll give you a place to live, a place to do this, and food to eat, and we'll, we'll take care of you. It says, yet we hear that some of you are living idolized, refusing to work, and meddling in other people's business. Listen to what first Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.8 about the child who doesn't work. He says, the man who does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The believer who doesn't work does not provide for his own house. They're worse than an unbeliever. That shouldn't be found in the believer. Our work should be in what is good work that's honest, honorable, and productive. The word good here in verse 28 suggests that which is good in quality. That which is good in quality. And here it refers to God-honoring work. In other words, a child of God should never be involved in a job, profession, work, or business that requires compromising God's standards. That dishonor God. That breaks His holy commands or misleads or harms others in any way. Every person is to, is to provide themselves and even more to share with those who don't have. In spite of hard work or because of devastation or incapacity or are in need to provide for them. Not only should our work not hurt or stumble anybody, it should be for the specific purpose of helping them to share with those who have need. A Christian's desire to earn more should be for the purpose of being able to give more and to help more. And beyond providing for his own, uh, for his own and his family's basic needs, he gets more so they can give more. Like the rest of his life, a Christian's occupation, directly or indirectly, should above all else be a way of serving God and serving others. Then verse 29 and 30, Paul talks about hurtful words. Put off, put off hurtful words and, put on, or, and use helpful words. Look at 29 and 30. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the, uh, who you were sealed for the day of redemption. Another change in the Christian's life should be to put off speaking hurtful words and speaking helpful and healing ones. The new man's speech should be transformed along with everything else. He should have a whole new vocabulary. And remember, what you say either helps or hinders, it heals or scars, or it builds up or tears down. We should want to help. We should want to heal. We should want to build up. The word corrupt here speaks of something that's foul. And the word was used to describe rotten, food, rotten fruit or rotten vegetables and other spoiled food. Foul language should never come out of a Christian's mouth because it's not natural to the new life. The word corrupt, that, that we speak of corrupt language, it should be disgusting to us. Just like a piece of rotten meat or a rotten fruit would be. 
off-color jokes, profanity, dirty stories, cussing, innuendos, and every other kind of corrupt talk should never come from the lips of the new Christian, the new believer. The believers, period. Paul's just giving the specifics here to, to, to the new life, the new man. Colossians 3.8, Paul said, But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. James tells us the tongue is very hard to control, and boy, is that a fact. He tells us in chapter 3, verses 6 through 8 of James, that it's, uh, that it's very hard to control. He says it's a fire, it's a world of iniquity, it's, a, it's set on fire by hell, it's unruly, it's full of deadly poison. You can tame just about every kind of animal but the tongue. He has nothing complimentary to say about the tongue. And, and, you know, you can see in God's creation, the tongue's a beautiful thing and how it can be used in the right way. But you see how he, 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 he put that little member behind like a double cage. First there's the teeth and there's the tongue. But it still gets out there. It's hard to stop. It's hard to stop. On top of putting away corrupt and harmful language, we're to develop speech that's good, speech that's edifying and gracious, speech, speech that's pleasing to God. Christians' words should edify. That is, they should build up by, helping, by being helpful. Our words should be constructive, encouraging, instructive, and uplifting. And sometimes they have to be corrective. But that's also edifying when that those uh, corrective words are done in the right spirit. Solomon tried to find acceptable words. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, I want to read to you what he said from the, it's called the easy, uh, easy to read version. He said, the teacher, speaking of Solomon, the teacher tried very hard to find the right words and he wrote the teachings that are true and dependable. Words from the wise are like sharp goads. When these sayings are written down and saved, they can be used to guide people just as a shepherd uses a sharp stick to make his sheep go the right way. Everything that we say should be good. It should be appropriate according to the need of the situation at the moment. You know, it, we need to have the, the right words to say at the right time. We don't, whatever, you know, when we speak, we don't have to speak words that are deep and important, but they should always lift up the situation. They should always fit the situation so that everybody benefits from it. And we should never say anything unnecessary. We should never say unnecessary things that might hurt, discourage, or disappoint somebody else. And even though they're true, and some things, though they may be totally true and perfectly good, are better left unsaid. There are those who always have to get the last word or say something, some sharp point, some dig. Everyone likes the wisdom and the goodness of people who speak less. But when they do speak, they speak something special, something helpful. Proverbs 25, 11 says, Timely advice is lovely, like golden apples in a silver basket. Timely is the key word, timely. Proverbs 15, 23 says, Everyone enjoys a fitting reply. It is wonderful to say the right thing at the right time. Whatever we say should be gracious, 
so it can give grace to those who hear. So the mature Christian, based on verse 15, not only speaks the truth, but speaks it in love. Cold, harsh truth is seldom appropriate, and it's often more destructive than constructive and more hurtful than helpful. We have been saved by grace, and we are kept by grace. So we are to live and speak in grace. Just the way grace totally describes God, it should also describe his children. Graciousness always characterized Jesus. Isaiah said in Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Paul said in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Salt is a preservative, and it helps to slow down decay. And the gracious words of Christians help slow down the moral and spiritual decay in the world around them. They also provide strength and comfort to those who are in need. Our graciousness reflects the grace of Christ who uses our graciousness to draw others to His grace. Another good reason for putting off corrupt talk is so that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The big reason, the main reason to put off corrupt, corrupt talk is so that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The word grieve means to be sad. To be sad. All sin grieves God. But when his children sin, man, it breaks his heart. And when Christians refer to change, uh, refuse to change their old ways for the new ways, God is sad. The Holy Spirit weeps when he sees Christians lying instead of telling the truth. He weeps when they get angry, when someone offends them, rather than righteously angered for harm done to his brother or the Lord. He weeps when people steal instead of sharing and when they cuss instead of, and, and when they tell dirty, joke, dirty jokes and gossiping and speaking unlip, uh, unlifting gracious words. He weeps. It saddens God because he's made us new creatures in Christ. Whatever is done against God's will and the holiness of the heart will grieve the Holy Spirit. And grieving can lead to quenching the Holy Spirit where he's not moving, he's not working. And it also, it can be a loss of power and blessing. And then in verses 31 through 32, we are to go, move from natural sin to supernatural goodness. Verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The last change now in the new man's life, Paul talks about, is turning away from fleshly sin to supernatural qualities. And that adds up to a, a list of the other changes. Man has a natural desire to sin because of our fallen nature. And that natural desire to sin is to grow greater in sin. And a Christian's sin will grow just like an unbeliever's sin if it's not controlled. Our, our, our inner sins of bitterness and wrath and anger will surely lead to the outer sins of clamor, slander, and other expressions of malice. 
The word bitterness used here is a slow-burning resentment. It's a lingering, grudgeful attitude. It's the spirit of irritability that keeps a person always bitter and making their their, their soul sour and making them spiteful. The word wrath here has to do with wild rage, the passion of the moment. Anger is more of an inner smoldering, a subtle and deep feeling. Clamor here is yelling from strife because of showing a loss of control. Evil speaking here is where we get the word blasphemy. Blasphemy is the continuing, continued insulting of someone that comes out of a bitter heart. And then Paul adds malice of all the things also that were to get rid of malice. Malice is a general term for evil that is the root of all sins. He says all these things he's mentioned here are to be put off. They're not to be a part of the new man, the new woman. These particular sins involve conflict between two people, a believer and unbeliever, or even worse, between a believer and a believer. These are the sins that break fellowship with each other. These are the sins that destroy relationships and the church. These are sins that weaken the church and spoils its testimony before the world. When an unbeliever sees Christians acting just like the rest of the world, the the, the church is dirtied in in, in the unbeliever's eyes. And they love to see this going on. Because it helps confirm their reason for not going to church. Huh. Look at them. Why do I want to go to their church? Why would I want to believe in their God? They don't believe any better than anybody else. Sad. But it's true. They look for that. They love to see it. Why should they, why should they want to believe the Bible? Paul said, in place of those things, he said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. These are the graces that God has shown us. These are the graces that God has shown to us. They're the gracious qualities we are to show each other. God didn't love us and choose us and redeem us because we deserved it but totally because he's gracious. So if God is so gracious to us, how much more then should we be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to fellow sinners, but especially to each other? The word tenderhearted has the idea of being compassionate. And it reflects a deep feeling down inside in the pit of our emotions, just gnawing emotional pain to do do due to compassion for somebody else. It's, it's an annoying that eats, us to, eats at us to want to do and to be compassionate for somebody's need. The word forgiving uh, is, is forgiving each other. It's such a basic showing of Christ. It's so basic to who Christ is because he forgave us of our sins. We are to show this Christ-like character <clears throat> that, you, that there really isn't much to say about. Because all through the scripture, we read of his forgiving, his forgiveness, his love. So in closing, 
Probably the clearest illustration of forgiveness is the parable in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, when Peter you know, asked Jesus, Lord, how often should I give? Seven, time, seven times? He goes, no, Peter, 70 times seven. And again, 70 times seven, 490 was not the magic number. It, just, it was just limitless, Peter. There's no end to our, our forgiveness for others. Like there's no end to Christ's forgiveness for us. And then Jesus told Peter the story about a man who owned a huge debt, who owed a huge debt. A debt so big he couldn't pay it. And, and the, the king that he owed the debt to forgave him. Just wrote it off. Paid in full. Don't worry about it. God forgiving a sinner. It's a picture of God forgiving the sinner of an unpayable debt of sinful rebellion against Jesus. We paid a debt. We, paid it. We, owe, we, we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. It was so big. And King Jesus said, forget it. I got it. You're covered. Man, this man was so excited. He was so joyous that the king forgave his debt. And the forgiven man, then he went to somebody that owed him some money. But it was a small amount in comparison to what he had owed the king. And this man who had been forgiven so much put the man that owed him into jail. The one who was so excited about being forgiven his huge debt that he could in no way pay but wouldn't forgive it of a small debt of another person. The terrible wrongness of what he did shows the terrible wickedness of a believer's unforgiving heart. And that man was severely chastened by the Lord for his wicked attitude. See, Paul has this same relationship in mind as he calls for believers to forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven us. How can we have been forgiven so much and not forgive the relatively small things others do against us? We, of all people, should always be ready to forgive. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful chapter, Lord, this beautiful ending to chapter 4, God. Lord, it's a picture, a snapshot of what we are to look like. And so, Father, may we go through these verses over and over again so we don't forget the picture of what we're to look like. Like, like James said, let us not be like those who look in the mirror and walk away and forget what we look like. Let that not happen to us, God. As the psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. Show me if there's any wicked way in me that I may change it, that I may put it off, get rid of it. Whatever doesn't please you, Father. Lord, help me to make it right, to do what's right always. God, help me to be tender-hearted. Help me to be forgiving. Lord, help me to be Christ-like in everything that I do, Lord. Christ is our example. He's our model. He's our pattern. Therefore, we are to imitate him. And our goal is to be transformed to the image of Christ. So with the hope of the, hope of the Holy Spirit, 
and the instructions in his word. May that be our, our, our heavenly goal, our righteous goal, a holy goal in our life. Father, we thank you so much. And Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Father. We thank you for your, <clears throat> your generous hand, for your faithfulness, Father. And uh, we thank you for all that you provide for us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.